welcome to Film Fight Club, the show where we don't talk about film, we fight about film. I'm Glenn Falconstein from Falcon Screen, and we are joined by local filmmaker Chris Evans. Hello, hello. Freelance writer and critic Virat Nehru. Hello, everyone. And we have a special guest this week, Richard Gray from website The Real Bits. Richard, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. So we have a great show planned. We're talking Netflix. We're talking Roger Moore, who sadly passed away yesterday. Uh, but first, we will be talking about the film of the week, which is Viceroy's House. Now, this is a film that played at the Berlinale. It played at the Young and Hot Film Festival at Palace Cinemas, and it's in Palace Cinemas now. It is set in 1947 uh, during the partition, and it is starring Hugh Bonneville and Gillian Anderson, and is about a British Indian co-production about what went on in this period. It's uh, a few of us have seen it, and uh, yeah, Virad, what did you reckon about Viceroy's house? <laughs> well, where should I begin? Gosh, let me flag this first. Let's not expect any historical accuracy in the film. It's not a historical drama. Yes, it is set during the time of the partition, but it is nothing about that. It is not about that. And it's directed by Grinda Chadha, who made Bennett Like Beckham, a great film uh, an eternity ago, when Kira Knightley was still not a thing. But now she is a thing. But sadly, the director hasn't moved on. So that is a problem there. But uh, unfortunately, what I really, really hurt me was... Yes, this is a serious topic. You know, there is a heavy heart when you talk about partition and there's a lot of emotional drama that could be mined from this film. But instead, this film becomes a very pantomime-esque sort of, as Richard would say, colonial cosplay. Yes. I'm sorry I'm hijacking your term here. <laughs> Damn, that was my only line. <laughs> Much like Pamela Mountbatten. <laughs> <laughs> Not a lot of love here for this film. <laughs> Look, I, I complete with everything that uh, Virat said. It was the the problem with this film is that it puts the mountain mountains at the centre of this thing, and it has this upstairs downstairs view of history. But the problem with that approach is that it just ignores everything that they actually did. Like it almost uh, uh, divorces the mountain mountains from any responsibility uh, for this. It kind of puts the the blame fairly on on Britain. The mountain mountains came out squeaky clean. As a result of it, um, they seem to be just, you know, uh, uh, Lady Mountbatten comes off as a uh, as someone who's is a human rights crusader who just happened to find herself in, in India at the oh, time. Gosh. You know. But what, what the problem with that is, it feels like it's basically Downton Abbey. Yes. Yeah, but on a very weird kind of drug episode. You know, oh, a very oh. special episode, drug adult episode of Doctor Abbey. Because I uh, watched that episode. <laughs> I would watch that too. Like, I, I, like I, great television. I think we're doing a bad job of talking about this film because we're actually selling the film, which is not a good thing. Uh, <laughs> but the problem with the film is the way it presents and this dichotomy between yep. the British characters and the Indian characters, and there is a huge power dynamic which is at play. And you, the first shot that we see of the film are Indian people cleaning up the floors, cleaning up the Viceroy's house, trying to make it squeaky clean. And that sort of feudal mentality doesn't go away. And it tries to project as if the colonial enterprise was this benevolent British enterprise and it just went wrong. Oops, sorry. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll leave quietly now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, but it's sorry not... about the mess, old chaps. We'll see ourselves out. <laughs> and, and, but, but that's a real problem because for a long time... Ever since colonial history, the horrors of colonialism have been trying watered down for a long time. And I think people kind of getting sick of that. We need to revisit colonial history and try to present it 
as accurately as we can. And it's not about historical accuracy, even though the way it presents Indian sort of diplomats at the time, you know, Nehru, as I can say, because, hey, we're at Nehru. And if you can make that connection, don't make a connection. Don't tell me about that. Anyway, uh, the actual Nehru, the first prime minister of India and the other Indian leaders at the time, the way it presents them, for example, the way it presented Gandhi, was a really weird caricature. and I How do like, you get Gandhi wrong? Yeah. Like, how, how do you get him? How, how they how did. You, how do you, you had one job. You had one job. <laughs> like, everybody has a picture of Gandhi. Like, even people who've never met the guy already know what he looks like. And they still got it wrong. I'm like, how? And he's played by a brilliant actor, Neeraj Kabi, who is, he was in Ship of Theseus, and he's a very good Indian actor. And he was reduced... I don't know what he was doing in that film. Well, can I ask, there's also a romantic subplot in this movie entirely separate from the main narrative. Yes. This is like Chocolat set in the partition India terms. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not I think you're being generous. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, I actually <laughs> like Chocolat. So. <laughs> uh, Johnny yeah. Depp's a theme tonight, yes, I yes, think. Yes, you there's, know. A, there's a lot of Johnny Depp that's going to be happening tonight. <laughs> yeah, but, but it's, I don't know what, what is going on. because, And what really hurts me also is the director, Grinda Chadda, made this film with a lot of sincerity, what it seems, because she's dedicating this film to her own past. It's a way of her trying to rediscover her roots and going back to that idea. And this is her dedication to her trying to work out where she's come from. So in a way, it feels like a sincere film, but it's not. It's strange because Gillian Anderson is doing such good projects like The Fall, um, The X-Files Arrival, but this just seems to be a bit of a misstep. I mean, she's pretty good in it the problem is that her character there's a lot of as Virat said there's a lot of historical inaccuracies it completely ignores her relationship with the Indian Prime Minister I mean um, that's the film I would watch I mean yeah. honestly the misdemeanors of Edmina Mountbatten I mean for those who aren't in the know she had a very notorious affair uh, with you know none of that is in the film not I mean, even a hint of it. Not even a hint of it. Oh, this, this doesn't look... This doesn't I know. As, as someone who has, like, a personal interest in that story, I was very disappointed. Mm. Oh, it doesn't sound like... Uh, best reviews. But, but even, <laughs> even like, like... I mean, dropping the jokes for a second, this movie has the late Ompuri, who passed away recently, mm. one of his last roles, and I'm just saddened to know that this is the way we might remember him, as a plot device, because he just reduced to that really sad blind father role that nobody wants him to play. <laughs> oh, well, that's Viceroy's house. It's uh, in cinemas now. Go see it! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's uh, not a lot of divided opinion on this one, but we will be back very shortly after a quick break, and we will be talking all things Netflix. Stay tuned. Sydney Film Festival is now on sale. There's over 350 screenings of 288 films from 62 countries over 12 days in 10 venues. From the magnificent state theatre in the city to the Ritz Cinema in Randwick, there's bound to be a film and a venue just right for you. It all happens from June 7 to 18. You can buy your flexi passes or single tickets right now at sff.org.au. Sydney Film Festival, proudly sponsoring 2SER 107.3. And we're back on Film Fight Club, and we are talking all things Netflix. Now... And whether Netflix films and films without a traditional theatrical release should qualify for awards ceremonies and festivals. There's been a lot of contention recently with the Cannes Film Festival, who have recently restated that in the coming years, there has to be at least a small theatrical release. Uh, There's by no means not a controversy in Australia 
Okja, which also screened to some contention at the Cannes Film Festival, which will be opening on Netflix in the coming weeks, will close the Sydney Film Festival this year. And there's a big debate about whether films, whether these are the correct rules or what is happening with the cinema. Netflix is certainly changing the cinema landscape. Um, and what is uh, the change in the entire shift in the theatrical release schedule and how things are done mean for cinema going forward? Richard? Look, I mean, uh, just as I was coming into this, I happened to be reading an article on IndieWire um, who were talking about the changing nature of, of cinema and that cinema is changing dramatically. And I don't, it's not one thing anymore. And... The recognition is that a millennial audience, um, if I can use the term millennial, sure. um, why not? Shout out to listeners. A younger audience is, is growing up in, a, in an environment where screens are getting smaller and content is getting uh, more easily accessible. So the rationale is that why not have um, you know first-run movies on your phone or on your computer screen or what have you? And let's be fair, it's not just Netflix. We're talking about other big distributors like Amazon as well, um, who uh, ma- massive behemoths who sort of seem to own the technology sector now. Uh, first they were disrupting the technology sector and now they're disrupting the, the theatrical sector as well. So we've got these two things happening, but I think the real question behind this is what is cinema almost in a way? Right, that's definitely true. The question could be raised if something's premiering on Netflix, is it a TV movie? Because mm. you, Netflix is now most commonly associated with TV shows. Yeah. And this is appearing on that channel. It doesn't have a theatrical release to set it aside. And it's not given the kind of grand rollout that films released in a theater yeah. get. Uh Netflix don't seem to be taking any effort to give their original films a level of prestige that they might have received if they'd been given a theatrical release. Um, Amazon, on the other hand, are pushing their films in cinemas. For example, Manchester by the Sea, which made a big splash. But Netflix... Also a good film, The Big big Splash. Yes. Yes. (laughs) A Bigger Splash. Uh, sorry, Big Earth <laughs> That's also a good film. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but, it's even um, better than Big Splash. It's bigger. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, there's, you can say you know, uh, that the times are moving away from the big screen cinema experience, yeah. and that's a less relevant thing to um, a lot of people in the younger generation. But I think the issue that the con, um, a lot of naysayers of mm. Netflix... Uh, who've been pressuring Khan not to um, screen the films. Um, I think a, the, a big part of their issue is that Netflix are in many ways undervaluing their films yeah. and the, the the movie watching, if not theatrical yeah. experience. I, mean, I agree. At, yeah. at the same time, let's see where the Khan people are. It's a French Riviera, for, you know. <laughs> I mean, yeah. honestly, it's beautiful, we're not... Man. We're not I, mean, I mean, I accept it. It's beautiful, but we're not all there. I'm here in Sydney in a studio with you guys. Yeah, well, it's not exactly the French Riviera. Well, 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 and I also, yeah, I also, I also yeah. 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 so we're not taking you to Cannes next year. <laughs> uh, darn, that was my only option. But at the same time, I also need my access to films. I need my film fix. You know, I yeah. need my hit. How do I get it? Yeah, because the theatrical environment isn't catering to the art house audience in Sydney as much as it did even ten years ago. Now, yeah. Yeah, and I think, that, I think that's the bigger issue. I mean, it, it's kind of, we're in a little bit of a bubble here in Australia. We haven't, I mean, traditionally, when I was younger, it took months even for the bigger releases to make their way out here. And now it's it's a very different environment. We get day-in-day releases. Sometimes we get them earlier. We're the looking of, at you, John Wick. <laughs> right, and that's a really great example. There is, there is no reason in my mind that some of these films, 
I know we have a limited number of screens here, but there's no reason in my mind, in my mind that if there's an audience for something, it can't be released here. Yeah, in some because format. John Wick did really well in it Australia. Really well. I mean, they were going to release like what John Wick two? What happened there? I know, it, and it's a weirdest thing. I mean, a whole bunch of them have happened lately. Twentieth Century Women was one this yeah, this week as well. It just oh, came out, notably yeah. from the same distributor as John Wick two. Right, these guys do not care. Well, <laughs> I mean, the, the thing is, going back to Netflix, I mean, these this is changing the cinema landscape in a lot of ways because they are mm. trying to bring back the mid budget movie and War Machine starring Brad Pitt opens this week and it's nothing to sneeze at there's a TV film potentially mm. from the director of yeah, Animal Kingdom and the Rover. Yeah, one of the biggest yeah. stars in the world Tilda Swinton and Ben Kingsley it's, it's huge I, actually when you were on that the term TV movie really irks me because it sort of implies a hierarchy or a dichotomy which I don't think exists anymore yeah that is true yeah it's true but Netflix it's interesting though because in the way that Netflix markets or doesn't market mm. these films, you have things that are pretty tantamount to what we used to consider a TV movie. Yeah, I mean, that's Except what I'm saying. It, like, it stars Adam Sandler. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, it's all, all up that, against all, like a Martin Scorsese I'm movie sorry, and they'll the get the same marketing. The Ridiculous yes, Six was ridiculously good. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, Big Vanilla was Mark Twain. I mean... Come on, yeah. Sandy Wexler, uh, I love you. Yeah. I mean, if you're being generous, you could say that Netflix is, you know, democratizing film. Like, you know, all films are out there on an equal landscape. They're, they're easily, it's an all-you-can-eat model that you can access them all anytime you want. Mm. But I watch every Netflix original film. I watch all the Netflix original indies. And Netflix doesn't promote those any more in my, in my allegedly curated feed than, uh, I don't know, the, as you said, the new Adam Sandler, the, you know, un- Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, any of those things, which is fantastic. But still, it, it's it's it. These are the things that float to the surface. And where there was great, uh, I don't want, I don't feel a lot, uh, at home in this world anymore. Was a Sundance film that went straight to um, Netflix within a month. Yeah. I think of yeah. Sundance. I think also the new Jeremy Sonnier film, follow up to Green Room, will also be on Netflix. Yes, um, yeah, Joe Swanberg's um, uh, film. I think it was called. Uh, I've forgotten the name of it for a moment, but it went straight to it went straight from South by Southwest. So Win It All was the name of it. Yes, went yeah. straight from uh, South by Southwest within a few months to Netflix as well. How but, many people know that? Yeah, you know the, the thing. Okay, I understand where a lot of the traditionalists at Khan are coming from, in that they they view this as a threat mm. to the way things have been and to the glory of witnessing a movie with a crowd of strangers on a big, huge screen with great sound in the mm. dark, but. Are the people who are catering to that old model, as you say, uh, Richard, mm. producing the mid-budget film? Would Okja yeah. exist if not for Netflix? Who is giving $50 million to a crazy Korean action auteur to make a oh. nuts vegetarian horror monster adventure Exactly. Thing. And it's let's more... face it, the majority of people, sorry to interrupt, but the majority of people who were who are going to see that film, it is playing at the Sydney Film Festival. There's at least two screenings of it happening. Yes. And I would say there's a huge chunk of the Sydney population who are interested in that film who were already bought tickets to that film. Absolutely, I've got my you tickets. Know. But this is the thing. We were talking about seeing it in a crowd, and that's fantastic. But at the same time, there is something to seeing a film, particularly a film that's made for a big screen, on a big screen. This is why so many people are excited to see Oxygen in that format. And is in the new... Way, the way this is going, necessarily taking away from that or moving in the direction a lot of big IMAX, huge screen filmmakers don't want to go. I think we who love that experience are a dying breed. Mm. And, well, we, we I shouldn't... Hope, I hope not. I mean, uh, I'd like to live for a few more years before I pass away. <laughs> but I think the theatrical distributors and uh, the even more than that, the production companies have 
themselves to blame for a large mm. part of this yeah. because in the content that they're pushing yep. and the market the um, marketing strategies they've pursued, they've really devalued the theatrical experience themselves. Yeah. So to a lot of people, the theatrical experience doesn't necessarily have this level of prestige because it's associated with just CGI spectacles yeah. and date movies I and agree. 3D. I, I, yeah. I think I think genre cinema has now become so permeated with what you go out and see in the theatre that artistic integrity and the aesthetic experience of seeing something at the big screen is now almost extinct. Exactly, yeah. Well, I mean, movies, I mean, look, let's face it, a a few of us in this room certainly have a rarefied experience in that we do get a lot of distributor screenings for free. Yes. Uh, So we see a lot of movies that other people... I've I've been to media screenings for films, which I don't... I think the entire audience for that cinema was in that room. You know, because it it, it may not have gotten a Sydney release. We're not not talking about Viceroy's house again, are we? (laughs) Possibly. That Um, that has every old old lady in Sydney landing up around the block. But the point is, like, movies are expensive to go and see. And, you know, you can't go and see every uh, every independent film. And the one thing that I will give uh, digital distribution props for is the same thing that um, home media did a while ago, direct-to-video movies, direct-to-DVD movies, exactly the same question, except now we're actually in a a position where the streaming has such a huge audience um, because people already subscribe to Netflix, people already subscribe to Amazon. They don't have to do anything extra to get the content. That's exactly right. Humans are a species of convenience, aren't they? Um, But a lot of the time, what, what we're trading... Um, convenience for quality. I, you know, I really miss video stores. The level of yes. selection yeah. you had in terms, you know, for a cinephile was amazing to be able to hunt out old films, foreign films, classic films. Silent in- Night, Deadly Night Part Two. <laughs> exactly. I that. Even even just in your local suburban video store, they yeah, had the a selection first... that shames Netflix. My my local they are video not store sticking up for cinema. My the local f- video store was a, you know, one of the big you know blockbuster or one of the the large chains. But the person who ran it curated the hell out of that. Yeah. And he loved doing that. And so it had one of the best art house collections of any major video store. And that's why I discovered half my love of cinema from that one. Yeah. yeah no, it's incredible. I mean, I remember my video store very fondly growing up. Video Easy, it's shut down now. It's a nice cafe. Um, but you know, there's, there's still, Netflix still hasn't recreated the experience of flipping through that literally thousands of DVDs and VCRs uh, that it was back then. So we're going to go to a quick break, and we're going to be back talking about our best bad movie segment. Stay tuned. I guess I'll have to change my plan. On May 27, you may well have to change your plans if you don't want to miss the 2SER Bob Dylan Birthday Marathon. 2SER's celebration of all things Bob will go for eight hours and feature news, reviews, interviews, the Bob Dylan quiz and all the Bob songs that fit, starting at 8pm and going through till 4 in the morning. The Bob Dylan Birthday Marathon on 2SER, May 27 from 8pm. 2SER 107.3. Stories, ideas, music, and Bob. It's a hard rains are gonna fall. And we're back on Film Fight Club with a segment we're very excited about called the Best Bad Movie Segment. <laughs> now, this is where uh, we're all critics and we get to pick <laughs> Not after a, this one. Not after this one. And we each, every now and then, one of us gets to pick a film that we loved and that we adored, but was panned and pilloried by everyone else there. And this week it is Virat's turn. Virat, what is your movie? Okay. My movie is... Brace yourselves, guys. It is Tim Burton's, yes, Tim Burton's 
Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Whoa. Not Gene Wilder version, the Johnny Depp version, which... I was convinced you were going to go for Dark Shadows right then. <laughs> <laughs> that would be interesting, well, Radio. That, that would be fascinating. Okay, that was my number two pick, right. but it's all right. But that's because I, I love Tim Burton, but... Do you love Dark Shadows? I do love Dark Shadows. That is interesting. Oh, wow. Uh, Okay, guys, take it easy. Uh, It's next week. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. I thought I was in the right because when it released, as I checked the Wikipedia page, it was released to critical appraisal, and I was like, yes. But (laughs) it's over time. Did you and write that? (laughs) Over time, yeah, it's come to be quite disliked. That that is true. Uh, And over time, I've liked it more and more. I don't... It's one of those things that I try not to admit in public. So why do you love it? (laughs) Why do I love it? Uh, I think there's something very innocuous about Burton's approach towards filmmaking that it's becoming lost. And I think that's one of the things that I really do appreciate about Burton. You know, not only from his early filmography, there's a consistency in Mm. Burton's approach to his filmmaking that I can basically trace back to his earlier films. So And he retains that in his version of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. And also, I kind of like the cookie Willy Wonka. For some reason, it's, Michael it's Jackson. a very <laughs> radical reimagining of it. And it's nothing like we ever imagined. I mean, Willy Wonka, the character itself, was quite radical. But this is an even radical version of that. And over time, I'm like, yeah, I kind of dig it. I don't know why. I just do. I, I thought Johnny Depp was just phoning it in then. I mean, he's made a few not-so-great ones yeah, over the past few years. I mean, Johnny Depp has been phony ever since he did Jack Sparrow, Pirates of the Caribbean. It's, oh, that was a fantastic performance, though. But yeah, the, ever the, since that. Like, that's, right, that's, right. that's the beginning of the phoniness of the Deppness. Was that the turning point? I mean, I mean, Johnny Depp is... is you know, ironically, playing the Invisible Man now in the in the Universal Dark Universe films, <laughs> right, which I think right. I feel as though that's what he has been to audiences for you know a couple of years now. But he overplayed a shtick, and people got sick of it. I and think. What, and what was the point? Because I remember a movie, there was a movie called Transcendence. Oh, yeah. And that was a phoned-in performance that was, right, I'm right. just coming yeah. in, just driving this it was through just this a computer or something. Well, yeah, it, you know, it was just really. It, it was just CGI Johnny Depp for most of the film. Yeah. Uh, so I. To take on this challenge, rewatched Charlie and the Chocolate Ooh. Factory for the first oh. time since it was released Brady yesterday. Okay, okay, I don't okay. pity uh, you. I'm sorry, I have to say this, Chris. I, I do love you. Yeah, I mean, it's okay. You know, it's, it's okay. okay. We'll this get through this. Fight Club. Um, <laughs> no. All right, I went in expecting to hate it after being warned by everybody when I said that I wanted to rewatch it. But, you know, it's a mixed bag, actually. I thought the first half an hour of this movie is wonderful. I agree that it's very consistent with what Burton's always been doing. Um, beautiful compositions and beautiful oh, yes. production design. The house that's slanted on the side. I know. Uh, it's, 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 it's really something to, to behold. And the tone is just right. Yeah. The, yeah. the voiceover and the music and the, the performance music, the of really his elderly cool. family. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's fantastic. But that whole subplot of the family with Christopher Lee, it just wasn't yeah, necessary. That's, well, the thing about, I agree that that feels tacked on. I think it seemed, it, the problem for me is that the, it feels like two different movies and the second one isn't nearly as interesting as the first because it's constantly hitting on the same note of these are grotesque kids and they get knocked out by Willy Wonka's slasher movie, Candy House. Um, but okay. I mean, I mean, yes. There, there, there is something to be said that Burton has been trying to remake the same gothic teen, angsty <clears throat> teenager movie for every teenager since eternity. But I think there is something very real about that because most of Burton's characters, the main characters, are these sort of misfits who don't find their place, yeah. and he's trying to sort of. Mm 
put that in a very family model and trying them to find their place. I just wish that Burton had held on to that emotional core throughout the film because when I feel it goes into the factory and, as I said, starts to enter into this monotonous kind of structure, um, basically... Charlie and his grandfather, who've been the, the heart of the film for the introduction, then just have to sit still and be silent while they watch Tim Burton, a.k.a. Willy Wonka, show off his machines. Yeah, but also, and at the same at time... at the end of the film suddenly tries to inject this emotional um, family core, which they've forgotten about for uh, over, yeah. over an hour back in with Willy Wonka's father, which hasn't really been integrated into the narrative... I'm just thinking I need to rewatch this film because <laughs> I haven't seen it in quite some time. I agree with you. One of the things that I do like about Tim Burton is that 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 aesthetic line that you can draw straight back. I've always liked that, and I do. It's something that I actually like. And I think one of the films that would, most disappointed me was uh, Planet of the Apes because you couldn't see that. Yes. In there. Okay. Yeah. Um, however, I think that's also the generous approach to Tim Burton, who. <laughs> <laughs> who you can also say has been doing the same thing over and over again. We've seen that. And I mentioned Dark Shadows at the top. And I think that's when it goes too far. I haven't seen it for a while, but I do remember when, when at the time, remember thinking at the time it was a step too far because the original one, or the original, the, the Gene Wilder version is yes. so dear to me. And to me, that's a performance that's really hard to top. Yeah, oh, yeah, absolutely. Mm. No, it's uh, well. There will be many more best bad movie segments in the coming weeks, but for the moment, we want to take a few minutes to talk about Sir Roger Moore, who yes, yes, who sadly passed away at the age of eighty-nine following a battle with cancer yesterday. He was he played James Bond in a record seven films. No other actor has played him that much. He played him from seventy-three through to eighty-five. He was the campiest and the suavest of James Bonds. <laughs> when asked if uh, he did all his own stunts, he responded, "Yes, I did all my own stunts. I also." do all my own lying and he was <laughs> he was quite spectacular and he made a lot of great James Bond films my personal favourite we're going to talk about our own was uh, well, my favourite but one I feel is underappreciated was A View to a Kill uh, this is a film where at the age of 58 he took on Christopher Walken a blimp, the Golden Gate Bridge, hung off the side of a fire truck, drove a car onto a bus, proved he was a champion equestrian, and snowboarded to the tune of California Girls in one of the best opening sequences of any of the films. <laughs> and I'm not even. And there was also Grace Jones and all this other stuff. And oh yes, he he will be missed. Yes. Oh my God, Roger Moore, Roger Moore. And talking of Roger Moore, actually, Australia has paid his own tribute to Roger Moore by a new hashtag: If oh. Bond was Australian. Bond was uh, Australian once. Yeah. I mean, once. Yeah. But we, we don't talk about There's that. There's a new film about that, by the way. Yeah, uh, becoming Bond by you know with George Lazenby. But the hashtag, some of my favourite ones, uh, you know, about uh, uh, the man with the golden gay time. It's my, my one of my favourite Australian references. And, uh, <laughs> Roger Moore was a pretty interesting Bond in how he pushed the series into being so comedic, so campy. Um, for, with that in mind, I have to pay my respects to Moonraker, which <laughs> in its glorious silliness... Coming in um, for re-entry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. He pushed, he pushed the pun thing to another level. Yeah. Um, that movie was just completely unapologetic about what glorious trash it was and six-year-old me <laughs> loved it and still holds on to some of that love today. Absolutely. Take a giant leap for mankind. <laughs> well, talking of giant leaps, I loved Live and Let Die because he leapt on top of crocodiles in that, yes. in that, in that yes. film. And, wow. and that was... When, when he did that, I was like, is, is that happening? And that's one of my favorite memories from childhood, when he actually tiptoed on top of crocodiles and crossed a pond. And never was, broke a sweat. <laughs> yes, yes, and in that film, broke a world record with the boat jump. Yes. Yeah. So, and great soundtrack. One of my best Bond movie oh, soundtracks. Paul McCartney and Wings. Yeah. 
I, look, I, I do have a, a deep Baba. soft spot for, for Live and Let Die, mostly because of the theme, but it has to be The Spy Who Loved Me. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, oh. Because there are, there are two key scenes in that. One of them is the ski parachute thing, oh, yes. where he skis and then parachutes up a mountain. You can't. I mean, that's one of the best Bond stunts, full stop. But second, it's got the underwater car. It's got the, the, the infamous underwater Lotus Esprit, which is uh, it was a crazy car to start with. It's beautiful. But the car was called Wet Nelly, which... <laughs> Incidentally, is my rapper name. Oh, so, yeah. uh, <laughs> and, and, and talking with Spy Who Loved Me, the very, very obvious undercurrent of love between the US and Russia right now. Yes. So I think uh, it might be back in vogue. <laughs> I think the Pretty next soft. Bond film is going to have a whole different flavor. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> what about The Man with the Golden Gun? Scaramanga, The Jewel Against His Equal? Oh, one of the classics. Uh, I That's almost true. like find it disappointing because it reduced Brick Eklund, who's a wonderful actress, to being in a cupboard which oh. is pretty sad <laughs> true and, but he made, he made a few others for your eyes only octopusy and yes the <laughs> man I must have seen that twice <laughs> <laughs> but, but more, more than uh, I think Blofeld what I think the most formidable opponent for Bond was George Richard Kill. And that yeah. was mm. Roger Moore mm. and Richard Kill. That's who you associate when you think of Bond. And they became friends in the end. And they had the classic, classic scene on the cable car. Um, still oh. one of the best action sequences where he jumps to the other. Oh, oh well, that's, look, that's all we have time for. Um, we will miss you, Roger Moore. We'll be watching Moonraker later tonight. Um, in the meantime, Richard, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks again for having me. As you can see, Richard's writings on therealbits.com. And we will be back next week talking everything Sydney Film Festival. It's only two weeks away. It's very exciting with the Sydney Film Festival director, Nashan Moodley. I'm excited, yeah. That'll be pretty good. It'll be good. It'll be great. So in the meantime, uh, enjoy movies. Have a wonderful night. And have your martinis shaken, not stirred. Good night. (laughs) Not all.